like to hear the papa cheers and play the characters that you cheer. So join us as we go, 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 below the frame. On this episode of Below the Frame, I am talking with Paul Rudolph. He's the guy that helps us Muppet performers sound as good as we do on Sesame Street, and he is also married to one of the Sesame Street Muppet performers. Here's a hint, it's Leslie Carrara Rudolph. We're also gonna hear a Jerry story and song, so listen up, it's time to go below the frame. Go, go, go below the frame. Welcome to Below the Frame. My name is Matt Vogel. You know, when we do songs on Sesame Street or for the Muppets, we pre-record those songs most of the time, meaning we go into an audio booth and we sing those songs ahead of time so that when we're on set, we just lip sync to the, to the music when, when we're rolling, not sung live usually. And it's not that we don't, uh, we, we do sing live sometimes, uh, we're very capable of doing so. We've done so at live events like uh, the Swingin' Sesame Street celebration with Jazz at Lincoln Center and uh, a lot of other stuff, stuff like that, live appearances like that. Um, well, today, I'm going to be talking to the gentleman that is the vocal music director on Sesame Street. He records us in his little portable audio studio, usually, in his office at Kaufman Astoria Studios and helps, I mean, he really helps us get through these records. Like I said in the tease at the beginning of the podcast, his name is Paul Rudolph, and not only does he direct Muppet performers vocally on the street, he composes music, he is a musician, he plays percussion and vibraphone, among other instruments, he performs his own music in an industrial percussion group called Glank, and he happens to be married to Sesame Street Muppet performer and all-around wonderful person, Leslie Carrara Rudolph, uh, whom I think you might probably hear from in this interview. So let's jump right into it and go below the frame with Paul Rudolph. Paul Rudolph, welcome to Below the Frame. So excited to be here, Matt Vogel. I'm definitely below the frame, if not at a different perspective from the frame. I'm in front that's true. of your frame and yeah still below it you're still where below I am the frame most and the kind of off to the side set. yeah right? yeah yeah and it should be noted if people do not know who you are married to can you please uh, ah. let let people know yes i'm married to leslie carrara rudolph she is the uh known as abby cadabby on sesame street that's right uh very talented multi-talented entertainer performer singer uh puppeteer etc Muppet stop performer, motion, um, stop motion film, stop motion artist. creator. <laughs> yes, stop motion uh, film creator. She's probably yeah. working on something as we speak. Uh, <laughs> the first, and, and hopefully she won't interrupt me oh my during gosh. this interview to make a sandwich like I did her interview with you. <laughs> she might, and that, that'd be okay. You know, she it's might nice just to have a little to, cameo. Just to throw it back in my face. That's right. You know. uh, Paul, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Normal, Illinois, and just, I know that's a strange name because people that know me know I'm anything yeah. but. Uh, but it also is kind of funny because we talk about like we have the normal fire department, and we drink <laughs> normal water. Yep. How, how um, far from Chicago is normal? Literally between Chicago and St. Louis, almost exactly oh. equidistant. A little closer okay. to Chicago than St. Louis. Um, uh, about an, you know, I'd say two hours from south. Southwest yep. of Chicago. Um, great place to grow up. Tell me about growing up there. Well, it's 
uh, culturally, you know, people say, oh, Central Illinois, you're in the cornfields. Well, it's a town of about 100,000 bl- between Bloomington and Normal combined, two uh, twin cities, and two universities, which I credit a lot of my musical upbringing and my parents' credit, too, for taking my sister and I to shows and performances at both of those universities. Um, it, you know, having that cultural center in a little town, which, you know, if you're in New York City and you're in 8 million, you can consider Bloomington normal a little town. <laughs> but there were there were um, two universities right there, and then very close by, an hour west and an hour east, two more big universities. And so... Gosh. The interesting thing about like when a rock band would tour through the Midwest, they would hit Chicago and St. Louis, of course, but they didn't want to just stop there, and they would do universities in between the two. So in Champaign, where I went to school, University of Illinois, you'd see these huge rock shows come through, and then they'd hit little normal Illinois, Illinois State University, 25,000 students, I think, at the time. And then they might go to Peoria, to Bradley University. So they had these three stops in the middle. And I remember Genesis one year started their tour in Chicago, but for their dress rehearsals, they were they went to Bradley University. And my drum teacher at the time took me to like the dress rehearsal there with full laser shows and everything. I mean, they wow. ran it top to bottom with no one in the audience just to prep the show and get it ready to then go on their but tour. You, but you were there. So you got to see it. Yeah, I saw one of those shows and then, you know, we saw like the tubes there and things, but I, you know, saw the police in Peoria at a big hockey rink, you know, the acoustically perfect hockey rink in Peoria, <laughs> Illinois, and uh, Champaign, Illinois, at the assembly hall. Saw, you know, saw the police there again, saw Peter Gabriel there, you know, REM, these big shows would come through, and college, college audiences, broke college students paying 20 bucks to go hear these shows. So, but, um, you know, my parents influenced my sister and I both um, musically. Uh, they took us to shows there, musicals, uh, boy choirs. I saw the the Vienna Boy Choir at at Illinois State University. Saw Victor Borga at Illinois State University. Oh my gosh! So this was really a, if, this was a very diverse uh, group of people that you were able to see through the years. Yeah, and I think that somehow had an influence on me with music and humor because my sister and I both took piano lessons from an early age. My dad taught me drums, which was just fun. Like drumming, drumming started just as fun. Me messing around, my dad showing me things, cadences and stuff, teaching me things. But piano lessons were a chore at the time, early on. And my sister and I had a and a, this is no no regrets to my no nothing against my parents, but our first <laughs> piano teacher was horrible, oh. chain smoking, oh, dyed no. red hair, just like. <laughs> Horrible. And when, when we, is we, this? Is this the seventies, the eighties? When is this? This is in the seventies. Yeah. yeah. This is like mid seventies. Okay. And we, we just did not enjoy piano lessons at all. So my, my mom then found a better teacher through recommendations of friends. The, the second teacher we had, Mrs. Merrill, we probably, I went to her maybe at least six years. So teachers obviously make all the difference in the world. Yeah. So, um, but piano lessons being serious, and then, you know, I see Victor Borga, and he's doing all this funny stuff. And my dad used to impersonate him when he would do the, the punctuation joke thing, if anybody yeah. knows that, where he would read something and then zoop, and do all the voices and pu- punctuation things. Um, so I saw that, and I'm like, well, that's funny. Why can't I make classical music funny on the piano? <laughs> and so I would mess around at lessons and make wrong notes and things. And, you know, piano teachers like, that's the wrong note. But there was something... Something I really took to that. I don't know. I, I think that really had some sort of influence. Plus, my 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 dad used to listen to like Kingston Trio and the Irish Rovers. There was a okay. song called uh, "Does Your Chewing Gum Lose Its Flavor" on I've the. I've heard of that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like that stuff was like that. 
So that was all humors. And there was some humor in Kingston Trio, although there was some very serious stuff like Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley. Like, that's a dark song. But like, yeah. uh, Charlie on the MTA, there was this song about like the MTA raising their prices and, and Charlie couldn't get off the train because he couldn't pay the, you know. So but somehow it, there was humor in music. I don't know if a light bulb went off or what, but yeah, I used, and I think I used that as, for, with my friends too. I would mess around on piano with my friends and just kind of entertain my friends. Um, and, and at school too, when uh, early on in grade school, I would accompany like our choir or, you know, if you did like a fifth grade concert, you know, the teacher would ask if I wanted to play piano on one song. And we had a couple good piano players, you know, we'd taken lessons and she, you know, each one of us, maybe three or four of us would accompany one song. So I accompanied on People. I think it was written by, is it Burt Backrack? People who need people. people who need so I remember people, yeah. playing that. But I would mess around with that too. And I would like play Jay Giles Band during rehearsal. <laughs> I went, the teacher's like, stop playing Jay Giles Band. We're serious. We gotta, you know. So, um, but, you know, if I weren't more of an intro, if I weren't more of an extrovert, I think somehow that comedic part of, piano playing and humor would have gone maybe some other different direction. I don't know. Well, well what was interesting but anyway, you yeah. got to see, you got to see Victor Borga and, and he kind of like, it sounds like he opened up that world for you of going like, Oh, you don't have to just play, you know, Mozart. You can also yeah. mess with it and you can create your own stuff. And that's, that's kind of cool. Right. Uh, yeah. what, what, and he never, he never finished a song either. That was the other thing. <laughs> it was cool. great. It's like he plays something and the guy had chops for days. I mean, he could play yeah. anything. But he would always make a joke about it and never finish. That's so the funny. Thing. So if you if you ha- if you don't know his work, just look him up on uh, YouTube. I'm sure there's lots of great stuff there on yeah. on YouTube, uh, including tell- the, the seat belt the seat belt on the piano bench <laughs> because he kept hilarious. like he would do this shtick where he kept falling. You know, he would fall. lean forward and the piano bench, you know, the two legs would come up and he'd fall and he'd, so he'd do that three or four times and then he would open it up and there'd be seat belts. There's just- nobody out there that does that kind of thing today, is there? I don't think. I don't know. It's so interesting and so unique. How yeah. unique. What a, what a cool yeah. talent. Uh, tell me about your, your parents and what did they do? Were they musicians? They were in, in their, you know, my mom in middle school, high school, played trumpet, uh, was pretty darn good trumpet player. She boasts that she, and there, she had, there were, I think, two classmates, a trio of really good trumpet players, um, and they did Bugler's Holiday when they were in high school which is a really challenging song for trumpets. Uh, they're in harmonies almost the whole time. They do double tonguing. It's, it's super challenging. So yeah, French horn, my mom sang as well. She played piano as well. Um, I have a great picture of her, you know, accompanying this big like 4-H choir in uh, Wisconsin. They both grew up in Wisconsin. My dad was a drummer uh, all through middle school, high school, college. He, they both, uh, my, both my parents went to Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin. They met in the yearbook line of all things. And my dad was in the marching band, uh, which that back then was part of his ROTC, R-O-T-C, the Reserved Officer Training Corps. That was yeah. that would suffice for your credit to be in ROTC if you were in marching band. Kind of interesting, like military-esque thing. Um, so, yeah, and my dad just, yeah, my dad influenced me for drumming. Um, it, totally improv stuff. You know, he would just teach me things by rote. My mom you know, said, you're going to learn piano, you and your sister both, you're going to get this, this background for learning to read music. And, you know, that's huge influence because, you know, I talk to parents and kids today who want to play an instrument. And I always suggest, you know, use, use piano as a, as a foundation because you'll learn both clefs. You can read bass and treble clef. Um, 
you uh, and you know not not that you're going to be a piano player all your life, but it can it can help you in any number of instruments or instrument that you choose, you know, going forward. So, um, yeah, they were both musicians. I think they also influenced me a lot vocally because um, they encouraged me to sing in church choir. I was also in a boy choir, oddly enough, normal Illinois, a boy choir. Um, there was a professor of music at Illinois Wesleyan University named Henry Charles, Dr. Henry Charles. He took his son to see the Vienna Boy Choir when he was a young, young, say middle school or before his voice changed, of course. Right. And his son was so inspired. He's like, dad, can you, can we start a choir? And so Henry Charles just started this boy choir in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois, which was called the Singing Wires, which was the most confusing name because everybody would misspell it. The only reason it was called the Wires is because we rehearsed at the YMCA. Oh. And I guess wire <laughs> as well. Like, I don't okay. know. Okay. Big mistake, I think, in choosing that. It could have just yeah, been yeah. the normal boy choir. Oh, yeah. Easier, or the normal boy choir. Yep. But he was, uh, they, Illinois Wesleyan was in Bloomington. Illinois State was in normal. So he formed this choir. And then, you know, by audition, you got in. And by the time I was in it, it had been around maybe 10 years. Um, you auditioned, you were in the cadets, which was the first choir that then led to the singing wires. Um, and that, you know, really uh, influenced me vocally classical. He did a lot of classical stuff. He wrote a lot of original material. He wrote operettas for us. He wrote um, gospel-influenced things. Um, we would do some rock. You know, he was not opposed to that. But, you know, we would do music from Oliver and any any um, musical that he would then arrange for the boy choir, for our voices, yeah. which had, of course, not changed. Uh, soprano, soprano, alto, usually. Um, so, how, how old were so, you at this point? 18. Uh <laughs> Your voice hasn't changed that was yet. Two years ago. <laughs> yeah. That was uh, 37. No, it was, uh, I was probably seven or eight when I joined the cadets. Okay. And then I was eight or nine when I joined the wires, singing wires. So, and then I had, I have friends that were in that, that I'm still close friends with today. Very good friends. And I think all of us got something incredibly positive and musical out of that too. Um, not everybody could read music, but we all had music in front of us, and Henry Charles would go to the piano, or the accompanist would plunk out the notes, and we would learn those notes. I think a lot of kids did know how to read music. I don't know if that, I don't remember if that was a prerequisite to, to the audition or not. But, I mean, we did some really challenging material, sang in Latin, sang in German, sang in Spanish. Um, so he really, because of the v Vienna Boy Choir influenced, that was his thing. I think he was also a music professor, history so uh, a professor of music history. So he wanted us to learn these different styles. Yeah. And then so, my church choir, same story, uh, Second Presbyterian Choir in Bloomington, Illinois. Um, we did a lot of different styles. We also had to memorize things, both in singing wires and in church choir. We had to memorize full shows. And I think that as a musician, I mean, that's invaluable. You know, when you learn, when you have to literally memorize 50 minutes of music, Wow. The melody, the notes, the harmonies, the lyrics in Latin or in English, uh, big influence. What, what other things did you do as a kid other than, you know, sing in choirs and, and drum, uh, you know, do percussions? Rode my bike a lot. Yeah. You know, got into trouble riding bikes a lot. Uh, rockets, you know, Estes rockets. Did you ever shoot off Estes rockets when you were no. a kid? Probably no. not. It's all everything's digital now. <laughs> rockets are digital. I grew no, up in, in the middle 70s, school. Though. You used to but, make those little, you had those kits, and you'd make a little rocket, and it uh -huh. had fins and a parachute and everything. And that was that was my favorite hobby when I was in middle school. Recording stuff too. We, you know, both my sister and I had little cassette recorders, and we would record silly radio shows. I was just talking to friends about this on Facebook the other day. 
just sharing stories of what we did with cassette recorders back in the day. And, you know, it's so different than today. I mean, your iPhone can hold data for days and you could record anything, but you had those cassettes that were like, I only have 45 minutes on a site. Okay, we got to be official. We got to make our little radio show and do this and that. Oh, Oh look! Oh, Uh-oh. somebody's interrupting. Oh, excuse me, I just have what? to make a, make a have to make a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Can you send a sandwich over to me right too, please? She, she can't hear you, but oh. but I can't hear both of you. Thank you. <laughs> Matt says thank you for the sandwich. Yeah, we were talking about model rockets of all things. What? Yeah, yeah. But know. you know, in this, did you ever were you a watcher of Sesame Street and the Muppet Show? Yeah, at some point. Um, Okay. Well, yes. In in first grade, this is my my. I I have very little distinctive Sesame Street memories. Like I I do remember the pinball song, mm-hmm. one two three four five. I remember that. Uh, I remember I remember what 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 would be is Jim Henson's voice and the guy carrying the cakes and falling down the stairs like that. Yep. The humor in me, the humorist. Yeah, funny funny musical bits. So. But when I was a kid, I think I was obsessed with numbers and possibly because of the count. Mm-hmm. I had in, in grade school when you, when you had those tablets and you were learning cursive or you were learning numbers and you would write between those lines and there was a little dashed line. I don't even know if kids have that today. But I filled a notebook with numbers and I still have that notebook. Like just numbers. I would just count. I was just counting. I have like, there's like 64 pages of just numbers. Oh so gosh. while I don't have a specific memory of the count... I think I was influenced by the count just by that obsession yeah. with numbers. I don't know. And, you know, another throwback to my dad and my influence was he listened to a lot of Dave Brubeck, which is there's many songs in odd time signatures. Mm-hmm. So, like, Take Five to me, which is in five, was really natural to me. Like, it's just, oh, that's just what you do. You count to five and you go back to one. It's like, it's on your fingers. Did you know it was in five and you were able to, to find that? or did you? I don't think I knew it was in five when I first heard it. But it was when I learned music and time signatures and music theory that I realized, oh, that's in five. And (laughs) when I played drum set with, I did a lot of drum set gigs in high school with like little trios and things that would play at the Moose Lodge or play at wedding receptions. I played with this German guy who played Hammond organ and he would lean over to me and go, and he requests Paul. And I was like, yeah, can we do take five? And he's like, (laughs) yes, very good. And he'd count it off in four and he'd play the whole thing in four. Oh, I'm like, okay, okay, well, here we go. I'm not going to play five against your four. I'm going to go with you. Yeah, yeah, I guess the whole thing in four was hilarious. And then Muppet Show wise, I at some point I know I saw the Buddy Rich versus Animal drum battle. So and and of course it would have been on TV because been. there were no methods of taping that and right. seeing it again. So I must have seen that live because I don't even know when the first taped version of that show would have come out. That would have been well into the 80s, right? Like on VHS maybe? I mean, I don't even know. Yeah, yeah, it would have been in certainly in the 80s, mid to late 80s, I would imagine when the, like those greatest Muppet videos would have come out. Yeah, it would have been late 70s, early 80s anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, my dad had a lot of jazz records as well, and he had, he had a double live album, Buddy Rich, you know, open fold called The Monster. And, you know, Buddy Rich just drove the band. I mean, the guy was just a machine. And I saw him in 81 or 82 um, after his first heart attack, you know, saw him in concert and just blew me away as, as a driving pulse of the band, you know. Yeah. 
So I'm guessing that you decided you probably wanted to go and study music in college. Yeah. Yeah. That or hydroelectric engineer, you know, that was my thing. Really? No, no. They definitely, definitely said, yeah, music, do your thing. And and marching band was a huge part of that too. I I loved marching band from middle school on. And, and I knew, uh, my sister was two years older than me. She had friends that were older than her. They were in the marching band that were drummers. And I was just like, they're the coolest. And I want to be in the marching band. And, um, my, my friends out there who were in the middle school that I was in, Chittix Junior High, will always remember our uniforms, which were a wool cardigan sweater. Oh. Beautiful shade of orange yeah. with like a logo on it. And here I am with my orange and blue Illinois. Uh, but yes, wool cardigan sweater. We, I think we did maybe like two parades a year. We probably did Labor Day and Memorial Day mm-hmm. or like homecoming. Um, but it was such a blast because, you know, here we are, this is, this is the lead into our high school marching band. And, uh, one of the first songs I ever wrote was a cadence for my middle school drum line did, did, <laughs> called did the paradiddle guys, cadence. Paradiddle, a paradiddle. What's a paradiddle? Get, do, what, do the, uh, a paradiddle yeah. would be what a, it? well, it's a rudiment. There's a lot of rudiments in drumming okay. that are basic kind of patterns that you learn and you learn them slowly, and you get faster and faster, and you build your chops. A paradiddle is a right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. So do that right? on so your... So paradiddle, paradiddle. A diddle meaning yeah. two in one of, the, one of your hands. So paradiddle, paradiddle. Right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. Wow. And there's a double okay. paradiddle. Double paradiddle, double paradiddle, double paradiddle. And then there's a triple paradiddle. Triple, triple paradiddle, triple, triple paradiddle. Then here's the real task. Yeah. For those of you at home. With your hands in one speed, paradiddle, paradiddle. With your feet, go half time. Paradiddle. Left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right. So keep that going. And then paradiddle, 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 paradiddle. I can only do one at a time. I can't do that. It's tough. That's yeah. coordination. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of practice. Yeah, that. <laughs> a lot of that. Oh, oh, I wanted to ask you about uh, about your marching bands. Were were you the marching bands that just marched in a straight line, or did you do like patterns and different? We did all and- sorts of patterns. Yeah, it, it, in that in that era, I graduated from high school in '84, and this was at a time when marching bands were really getting more and more extreme and elaborate with their drill design. We called it a drill, in the the military term being marching drill. In my high school was only three years, sophomore, junior, senior. We had a middle school that was seven, eight, and nine, which is very odd, but it's normal. <laughs> so yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it's from normal. So it was because of the size of the buildings, literally, like seven, eight, nine fit in this building, 10, 11, 12 fit in that building. So um, my band director, George York, fantastic band director, and the assistant band director, Kirby Reese, would decide on a show for the fall marching season. And early on, there were these very symmetrical shows where the drum line was kind of on the 50-yard line. We just went back and forth and back and forth, and everybody spread out around that. It was super symmetrical. And then my senior year, uh, he knew he had this, you know, no, I'm, I'm boasting about my senior class, but we were a very good musical class. And he's like, we're going to buy a drill because we need to be more competitive. So he went to you know, a private company or an individual and bought a drill that was specifically designed. I mean, that, that's like part and parcel. Wow. Every marching band that's somewhat competitive today does that in spades today. They do it all the time. So now we had this morphing, weird, asymmetrical show that we all had to learn. And it was super complex for our brains that had just been doing these symmetrical shows. Um, and then I marched in a drum corps, the Cavaliers Drum and Bugle Corps, out of Rosemont, Illinois, and that was another level of 
complexity of drill formations on the field. And then University of Illinois marching band, that's, you know, there's 275 or 300 on the field marching at one time, uh, learning a show every one or two weeks for a home game, different show. Wow. So wow. in, in high school, we did one show for the entire fall season as a competitive show, you know, a 10 minute show. And in, uh, in college, it was a, a brand new show. And, you know, we knew if we had two weeks in a row, it was going to be a little less complex for those two shows we had to learn, but still many, many hours. Yeah. On the wow. field. What did you study? Music education. That was my, with a percussion emphasis. So uh, it, it was weird. When I, when I auditioned for the University of Illinois and got in, I wasn't really sure where it was going to lead. I mean, I knew I was in the music education track, um, mm-hmm. but there were phenomenal percussionists around me rehearsing as percussion performance majors. And I didn't even really realize, oh, there's a difference. You know, I thought they were all kind of in the same track as I was. And then I realized later, oh, these these people are practicing 10 hours a day on one xylophone riff from Porgy and Bess because they want to be a classical percussionist in an orchestra. That was not my path at all. I knew I definitely took, you know, every semester I had to take percussion lessons because that was my emphasis. Um, and so that was marimba. And first time I ever played vibraphone was in, in college. I think I played it maybe once in high school when we went to an event with our high school to a university. And I got to sit there and play a vibraphone. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is. And for those that don't know, vibraphone, metal instrument with a sustain pedal like a piano, but with a uh, caps and uh, a, 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 a mechanism that creates a vibrato kind of sound. There's one right here. Do, uh, do you plug it in? Yeah, you plug it in. There's a motor. There is uh-huh. actually a motor on the vibraphone, and all that motor does it. It's adjustable by speed. So here's a vibraphone. Here's just a single note of a vibraphone with no vibrato at all. Okay. Right. It's just sustain. It's a single note. So pedal up is staccato. Yeah. Pedal down. Motor on. Whoa, I can hear ah. it already. And I can adjust the speed so I can play a very slow vibrato. Does it Does it activate when you hit the pedal only or No, it's it's constantly turning. It's so constantly even going. when even when the pedal is down I or up, yep. so it's not sustaining. That's staccato, but you do not hear that vibrato unless you are sustaining a note. Uh, yeah, very cool. So, and primarily a jazz instrument, you know, from the Lionel Hampton era. Um, and, you know, that's in college, that's when I really started to dig that instrument and really listen to a lot of jazz recordings because I, I, I'd heard it. I'm sure I'd heard it in the past, but I'd never played it physically and gone, wow, this is, there's a lot of creative possibilities with this. I'm so, sorry, Leslie just stepped in here again. Oh, so she's, I, I heard the vibraphone. Oh, she heard the vibraphone. And it was like it's calling. Yeah. I thought my it sandwich was, was done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, that was your sandwich alarm going off. Yep. Yes. So what did you come out of college with? What kind of degree? Uh, a bachelor's in, in music ed. So um, that would basically certify me to teach music in from K through 12. And you also had to get certified as a teacher. So uh, different states had different requirements, but you basically had to pass a test that said you are 
a Illinois certified teacher. And, and what were some of your early jobs that you had before? Let's say I'm, I'm trying to gear up to get to, to land on Muppets tonight. Uh, I mean, early on, my first musical job was playing music in high school. Uh, before I could drive, I joined a uh, a wedding reception band, basically that my my good friend Steve Baker and his mom were in called Pangea. You know what Pangea is? It's some of the, the, the giant, world, isn't it? The world, but it's all the pieces that are together. Yeah, all the giant the singular the continent. But anyway, yes, strictly a wedding reception band. So I had to learn all these different styles. And at the the woman who was the head of this band I was in was also a dance teacher at the Tierra Ballroom. So the cha-cha, the rumba, the merengue, she taught all these specific dances to various ages, mostly skewing older. <laughs> and I had to learn all those beats. So my drum teacher at the time was like really emphatic about learning all these different styles, you know, swing, swing eights versus straight eights, which are, you know, very opposite in the, in the music world. Swing being a triplet feel, merrily, 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 and straight eights being cha-cha, cha-cha. And my drum teacher at the time was also in this band called the Lamplighters, which was the house band at the Tierra Ballroom. I know I'm talking like I'm in the 1940s right now. (laughs) Yes, it was the Tierra Ballroom, but it was really 1981. It wasn't 1940 at all. And so I started subbing for him, my drum teacher, at this band. So I was 15, I think, when I started doing that. So I couldn't drive. My dad would drive me to the the clubs. Um, And then there's people drinking around me. I'm like, I I guess this is legal. You know, I'm 15, but... Not so strict laws with a musician, and I was in the musicians' union, you know, when I was fifteen. So, um, yeah, and I think and some of that too, that influence leaning towards Muppets Tonight uh, was in the musical theater world. So I, I played a lot of shows as a drummer. I was in musical theater as a as, a, as an actor. Very proud of the fact that I was the Teen Angel in Greece. Thank ah. you very much. Um, high school summer parks and rec production. I was also yeah. in pajama game. But I, I, I played drums in a lot of pit orchestras. The first show I ever played in a pit orchestra was West Side Story. That musical is still, to me, the number one uh, amazing musical of all time. I mean, Leonard Bernstein, you just, you can't go wrong. And the, the music director, she talked to my drum teacher. She's like, can, can he do this? And my drum teacher, to his credit, was like, he's got this. He, he gave me the confidence to really wow. sit in and do this. Because there was some odd time signature stuff in that show. There's, there's meter changes throughout. Um, and this is my first show. I mean, this isn't Bye Bye Birdie, you know, no offense to Bye Bye Birdie, but that's, <laughs> everything's pretty much in 4-4. Four four. And this was like, wow, there's some stuff in 7. And so, yeah, that took, that took a lot of practice on my, t- my own time and with my drum instructor to get through that musical. Yeah, that kind of leads me to the performance aspect of theater slash TV music production. Did you ever end up teaching? Yeah, well, yeah, I had I started teaching drum students when I was in high school, like my senior year in high school. My first student was Dave Monty. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget. Like would, you know, come over to my house and we'd have two snare drums up and I'd be just t- teaching lessons. I think we did a, maybe a little bit of drum set, but I think it was more just fundamental kind of stuff. So then in college as a part-time job, I would teach privately to whomever. I started teaching at a small town outside of Champaign, Illinois, Muhammad, Illinois. Um, and I started driving my car out there and teaching privately to students out there. That music program had a very close relationship with the University of Illinois. Um, the band director there would bring lots of college students out there to teach his students because it, 
it was a great part-time job for a college student if you had a car and could get out there, but also a great thing for him to encourage his kids to study privately, increase their their skills. Um, so I would teach out there. I, I think in college I maybe had like 10 or 15 students out there. That was, that was my part-time job. I, I only taught for three years, and but it was very influential on a lot of things that I still do today with making musicians feel comfortable in a studio booth or teaching, you know, a complex rhythm, things like that. The teaching aspect of music has, has always been a part of me since that first student, since, mm. since I had great band directors and great, you know, choir teachers and things. I, I think my upbringing, I'm so fortunate to have those great teachers because I still hear people tell us, oh, I had a horrible band director in high school. There were only 20 kids in the band. I'm like, really? We had close to 200 and it was a great experience. I just, yeah, I, I looked at band directing as like, okay, this is it. This is my degree. This is what I'm going to do. And I just, I started doing a lot of arranging. I would uh, do some arrangements for the marching band, a couple arrangements for the jazz band. And I just felt this creative part of me being like, I need to do something different. So hmm. I stopped teaching in the public schools. I moved to Chicago. I was with in, in, in a punk band with my good friends, Ted and Wes, for a couple of years. And then I decided, okay, well... I'm either going to drive a limo and be in a punk band for the next 30 years, or I'm going to do something else. So I went back to grad school at the same university, University of Illinois, and I worked towards my master's in music composition and arranging. And so I had a good friend in uh, during undergrad um, who moved to LA shortly after graduating from, we both graduated around the same time from undergrad school. She moved to LA and became, she worked for a film composing agent named Richard Marks. And so under his wing, he had maybe eight or 10 uh, composers, you know, and she's out there going, you know, I think you could do this stuff, you know, and at the time I was just messing around on four track cassette stuff and writing weird percussion music, you know, on my own, just as a pure art form. But when I went back to, to, to grad school, I had really thought about being a film composer and saying, you know, something about that is really intriguing. But then I had to have a portfolio to submit to grad school for application. So I really had to sit down and focus and write some music out. And, uh, but a lot of it was percussion-based. And the instructors that I knew that had me for music theory class, and I was in their classes, and I would mess around and play different or submit different pieces for them. One professor in particular, Zach Browning, I just had this connection with Zach Browningham, and so he was the first person I talked to about even going back to grad school. And he's like, "Well, you got to submit a portfolio." You know, I've heard your stuff; yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah. So he, uh, I think, he was really helpful in getting me in the door there. And then I studied with I studied with him for a year, and I studied with uh, Salvador Martorano for a year, uh, who was just this really bizarre, trippy composer. Uh, probably in his mid-70s at the time. So my instructor, Sal, had a piece called LGA, which was Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. It was for a person in a gas mask, inhaling helium, reciting parts of the Gettysburg Address with like a pre-taped, pre-recorded piece that he had done on like computer tape, you know, early, not even really synthesizers per se, but this really weird music concrete kind of stuff. So that... That's I a mean, blank influence. Which yeah, is, it definitely is. I was going to say, it sounds very <laughs> blank. But, but also, I mean, it's very performance art. Totally. It's performance very art. performance art. We'll be back with more from Paul Rudolph in a minute. But right now, it's time for a Jerry story. Today, Fran Brill shares a memory and then reads a story written by Jerry Nelson. For years, the puppeteers on Sesame Street, as well as many of Jerry's friends, family, and fellow musicians, had begged him to record an album he played a mean guitar 
and often entertained us in the Muppet Lounge during lunchtime or in between setups. He also would sing and play his guitar at the annual Sesame Street Christmas parties. Well, everyone would look forward to Jerry's moment. This is when he would really cut loose and have a blast. He sang his own songs as well as familiar ones. He always brought down the house. In 2009, it finally happened. Kevin Clash organized everything. A studio was rented, and Jerry and the musicians and the puppeteers spent at least one day, maybe more, recording from morning till night. Jerry was weak and having trouble breathing, but every time when we were doing a take, Jerry dug down deep and found the energy to sing and play his guitar. The album was called Truro Daydreams. 2003. 39 years on a 40-year-old street. Today marks the 40th anniversary of Sesame Street. Other than the news, historically the longest-running show on television. Well, with the possible exception of a soap opera or two. Still in all, it is humbling to have been a part of something so significant in the history of the media that was born in my lifetime. Forty years, whew, seems like a lifetime. Over half of my 75 years on this planet has been spent being what has been referred to as a Muppeteer. It's funny when I think about it, because at least 20 of those years I denied being a puppeteer. I was an actor who was working with puppets until a film or stage job came along, and all I really wanted to do was sing. My grandparents used to give me a quarter to learn and sing songs when I was a sprout about five years old. South of the Border was maybe the first of a long list of tunes, and I'm still learning them and singing them, and will until the day I die. I don't know if they knew the extent of what they were doing and how they were prepping me to have a way to get along in the world, but I like to think so. I guess everything you observe and do and experience in life adds to that oneness that makes each of us so unique and at the same time makes us an everyman that shares the human condition in the most fundamental ways. Working with the Henson organization was like working with your family. And when I started working on Sesame Street, that was another extended family. So now the family was immense. The idea behind the Sesame Street project was to use the tool of television to teach underprivileged preschool children. But what happened was that the show charmed taught and brought love and laughter into the hearts and minds of children and adults all over the world. Chance? Dumb luck? Or destiny? Who knows the controlling force that chooses where and how we find our lives manifest? I can only say I have traveled through the breathtaking up-and-down melody of a lifetime that I studied and trained for, wandered the paths of least resistance following my water nature, and that I am either blessed and one of the luckiest bozos walking this planet, or both. In any case, yee-haw, hot dog, you old Mustang, you, and boy, howdy. 
Today, I'm celebrating by getting all my chores done for once. Oh, I didn't tell you, I'm also the laziest man on earth. My father told me I should get a profession or vocation because you can't possibly make a living as a puppeteer. Then later he told people, Hell, Jerry pays more in taxes than I make. Just goes to show, stick to your dreams. Thank you, friend. Coming up in a bit, we're going to hear a song from Jerry. But now, back to the show. We're back with Paul Rudolph. My friend who was the worked for the film composing agent, she, yes. she really gave me a lot of confidence to, to go out to L.A. and just be there because that was one of those things where you can't just say you want to do it from your chair in normal Illinois or Champaign, Illinois. It's like <laughs> right. you got to just be here. Just come out here. We'll find work, whatever it takes. I, I moved out there. Um, yeah, my good friend uh, you know, put me up. Um, I interviewed essentially with a couple of composers, one, one of which became my boss on Muppets Tonight, Richard Gibbs. And this is, I owe, I owe many, many things to Richard Gibbs and my friend uh, Katura as well. Um, but the confidence level of me getting there was like the big impetus. Like, I just didn't know. When I first got there, I, yeah, I interviewed with Richard Gibbs. My last drum student as a part-time job, I did some limo driving um, I did some car washing, detailing. Uh, I detailed uh, Leslie Nielsen's um, Rolls Royce. Um, it's another story. So, um, I yeah, I was not. I, I, Richard wasn't going to be busy until the fall. I got there in June, and he's like, "I got a lot of stuff coming down the pike. You know, we'll talk." So I had nothing to do all summer. My last drum student, more or less officially, was D of the of the girl all girl punk band L Seven. And Dee was a, a wonderful punk drummer with an amazing sense of time in terms of metronome and never used a click, never used a click track to listen to and play to, could play any tempo and just rock solid, very much influenced by the Stones, Charlie Watts, like, but, but just with this punk ethos. And she needed help because uh, they were working on a song for the Twisted Willie comp- compilation. So a bunch of bands were going to play Willie Nelson covers. She had never played swing or a shuffle in her life she had played never never swing so that was my job i am like i'm going to teach a drummer who is self completely self-taught and amazing amazing sense of time she has this song that goes from straight time into they're going to do a breakdown in the middle of the song and it's going to this shuffle beat so she and i worked on that you know, for a few lessons in Culver City, California. <laughs> so then, yeah, then Richard um, got busy and I started working with him uh, on the Tracy Ullman show, which was called Tracy Takes On. The show, he was composing a lot on his own and then he needed me to come in with the film and start really laying down the score and the underscore to the Tracy Ullman show, uh, which was great because he was a wonderful comedic composer, great sense of humor, uh, brilliant musician, um, he was he was the keyboardist in Oingo Boingo, so he knew Danny Elfman and um, was very influential with Danny Elfman and, and his kind of whole film scoring ethos. Um, Richard Gibbs had also scored the first season of The Simpsons, so he definitely had a, a sense of the the comedy. Yeah, <laughs> and then you know Richard was what I would do for Richard. I was basically his studio assistant. So I every morning I would come in and start the day by alcohol swabbing the twenty the twenty four track two inch tape machine. And cleaning the, the tape head. So it was still analog. You know, he was dealing with digital keyboard stuff 
that he was importing into the still analog world. So I was sitting at a, at a Trident board, a 48 input board. And I'm like, I, I, yeah, okay. I know what that knob does. So <laughs> yeah. it's not, this is not my path. I'm not going to be sitting at, at a giant board like this, but I could look at levels and go, yeah, the bass drum's too hot. Yeah. So I basically helped work through that, that score of the final uh, elements of the Tracy Elman show or Tra- uh, Tracy takes on, but was what was really fun with Richard is he was a good mentor to me. We would go to like spotting sessions, music spotting sessions, which is where you're sitting with the director, you're watching the the locked picture and you're saying, when does the music stop and start? You know, here's a scene. Where does it come in? Where does it end? And so he would test me on that. We would be looking at a scene. He may have already spotted it with the director, but I wasn't in on that meeting. And he would say, okay, watch the scene. Tell me where the music starts. So I'd watch a little scene and be like, Oh, maybe when the guy has an idea and he turns his head. So, you know, it, and, and I found, you know, I had not scored one film in my life, but I kind of realized I'm like, well, okay, I, I have some instinct here, you know, with like at least the emotion of watching a film because I'd watched a lot of films yeah. <laughs> who yeah. hadn't, but at least I could look at something and say, okay, I think I know if I could watch a raw piece of film without music, I could probably look at that and go, yeah, I think I know where that, Got it. that should start or stop. But then at some point, yeah, he got the call um, from, I think, you know, somebody at the Henson Company. It might have been like Dick Blasucci or maybe Brian Henson to come in and, um, and, and work on Muppets Tonight. So he, you know, had his own ideas musically for that, including like the Zydeco band mm-hmm. feel, uh, which a lot of his good friend musicians, uh, Doug Lacey was a, a wonderful accordion player, singer, Whistler. He became the Whistler on the opening theme yeah. of the... Of Muppets Tonight, uh, an amazing bass player named Freebo, uh, Mark Shark, guitar player, and then Michael Jokum, drummer. Uh, these guys are just like the top of the top, you know, studio musicians in LA. So I got to work with them a little bit on just the theme song stuff. But Richard got the got the job as music director on Muppets Tonight, and basically brought me in as you know assistant music director or my official title I think at the time was music coordinator. So I was basically coordinating between the writers the directors and Richard, anything and all things musical between the, you know, the offices and Richard, because he was out in Malibu offices were at rally studios, uh, right in Hollywood. So I'd go to the writer's meetings. I would relay information to him back and forth. Um, and this was just like, I mean, I was in heaven, you know, I was totally green. I had, you know, I knew nothing from the job I was doing, (laughs) but I learned it quickly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, working with writer, you know, writers that I, these people I still know today, Kirk Thatcher, um, Dick Blasucci, Brian Henson was on that. Jim Lewis writing a lot of stuff for the Muppets even today and was, you know, one of the writers back then. So just sitting in those writer meetings and, and talking about music and, and the way the show is going to be, you know, cut together musically was just fascinating. Yeah. A lot of that was, was, kind of math because it was here's the show length here's the song we want to do how can we cut down the song to make it still worthy of being the song but not a two and a half minute song right so i I would often look at those and the writers really had like more inclination of that because they're looking at the lyrics uh dick blasucci is a wonderful musician in his own right Mm -hmm. a great guitar player and he they they had the parody music down like they knew how long it's going to take you know this is going to be about 40 seconds but if there were any things that i could contribute yeah i would look at it at maybe an intro or a tag or a middle section whatever um richard of course was was spot on with that stuff as well so when it came to the songs you know like garth brooks there were four or five songs in that just that one episode so we had to time that out and get that just right to fit the puzzle 
which was, yeah, a lot of that was done upstream from me. Um, what, what became really fun for me was the onstage live musicians. They had live musicians on stage doing live music? Yes. I would say 70 or 80%, maybe not that much. 60 or 70% of what we did on Muppets Tonight, with a, often with a musical guest, was live. Wow. So what would happen is we would bring in just a very bass, uh, piano-based drums, just a rhythm section on set. Because, you know, again, this is, digital is still coming into its own. I mean, there's definitely digital there. Um, our A1 and our A2 were in a booth off, off to the side, and I remember the A2 was dealing with... Um, it was like Sound Designer 2, but it was like an eight-track editor. So he could trigger sound effects. He could play back music. Um, but it was different. And I think, to Richard's credit, he wanted that live feel. And I think maybe Brian Henson, maybe all the, the execs were like, no, we really this needs to be live and energetic and have a Muppet Show feel. Mm -hmm. So we, even with that challenge, the live musicians, I mean, the studio guys are going to nail it no matter what. The the variable the variable comes from the guest and the singing and in tune and all that. But it just it was not really a question. Like, no, we're not going to pre-record this. We're going this is going to be live. We did pre-record a lot of Muppets for sure. We we record a lot of pre-recorded a lot of vocal bits that were just Muppets only. And then you know when a guest musician would come in or a guest singer like John Goodman. We would always pre-record vocals as a safety to have it, but we would then offer them, look, do you want to do this live on the day? And if, if they were confident enough, yeah. And is there going to be a band there? Yeah. We can do different tempos, but, you know, again, that puzzle of timing, it's got to be a certain thing. Yeah. Um, many of them did that stuff live. So, you know, I, I, Don Rickles was in a giant Kermit suit singing it's not easy being green and i i was i counted him in i mean he's got kermit and the banjo and yeah. it's the soul shtick and you know i'm just below the frame i'm counting him in going you know four three so live you and know he sang, and he it, sang live. it live who else were you impressed by oh yeah uh live wise uh well like rick moranis you know again comedic timing for days i mean just just an expert. And I think he knew all these guys from the SCTV days, probably Blasucci and, and those guys, but yeah, just, he did, um, oh, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And I had to count him on that because there were so many of those in a row. Yeah. <laughs> I was going six. I know, I know, I know five. I know, I know four. I know. I could get to, he's like, can you just, can you just show me that? Cause it's, yeah, there's so many of those in a row. Um, Jason Alexander, you know, triple threat singer, dancer, What's the other uh, actor. actor? Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was brilliant with, we did Bats the musical. And I mean, that was he and Gonzo who went to the Polytechnic Institute of the Arts or whatever. They were, cla they were classmates. That was the shtick. Um, we did this big finale called Bats the Musical, which is, of course, a parody of Cats. And I remember this is distinctive on the stage. We have, I have this four page lead sheet of bats, the musical and we're like, something's wrong. It's like the timing's off. We need something has to be a little shorter based on the puzzle of the timing of the show. And I'm holding that up and Richard's over my shoulder and Jason Alexander's over my shoulder. And he goes, Oh, why don't you just take that and do blah, blah, blah. And do just blah, blah, blah. And do that. We're like, that's it. <laughs> so, because yeah, I mean, he had musical theater experience yeah. for days too, and could look at that puzzle and go, okay, shorten that, move that, move that. So, but the, in, if you watch Bats the Musical, the way it was then edited and put up in the show, it is, it's chopped up. So it had to be that way for 
I guess, you know, for that editing reasons, but he was yeah. phenomenal. Wow. Uh, I mean, Prince, come on. Prince pre-recorded a lot of his vocals, but he also redid a lot of his tracks. So we were going to do, you know, there was a whole list of songs that we wanted to do. Um, uh, Raspberry Beret, um, 1999, all these songs that we wanted to do. He went back at his studio in Minneapolis and re-recorded some synth parts and percussion parts, redid stuff to kind of just give it a little something, you yeah. know, versus the tracks that had come out in the 80s. So you were using them up. the original tracks, I guess, the masters, right? Yeah, and but enhanced, and you know, by him them. personally. Wow, that's cool. You know, he wanted them. And he his, uh, his German engineer came. Uh, his name wasn't Dieter, but let's just call him Dieter because okay. he was great. He brought, he brought a one-inch Sony digital tape which again, I was like, what is that thing? So yeah, Sony digital, which we then imported. And I think we put all of his songs on dat tape, digital audio, the little mini cassette looking things. And again, that was all about timing. So we had to cut some of those songs down and Dieter, his wonderful engineer, not Dieter, sorry. He, this guy was amazing. Uh, was so, you know, this is the thing about engineers and new technology. The guy just knew it like, Oh yeah, I know, I know how to do that. And he would chop up the songs and make it work. And if it's an A, A, B, A, or and B needs to be shorter, we got to cut the first A, boom, it was done. Wow. So, um, I mean, just amazing musician. That We had an interesting experience with that. We had, I think we had two full days with Prince. Uh, and this is back when he was known as, you know, the artist formerly known as, mm -hmm. and the symbol and everything. And we had rented a beautiful seven or nine foot grand piano. But for the day when we would rent pianos, there was always, if, if anyone was acting or moving around a piano and the piano was open, pianos are like this giant soundboard. And so if you hit the pedal or if you hit the piano, you're going to hear a bunch of noise. So what we did, we, we would rent a piano. The piano company would put in this piece of wood that would dampen all the strings. And it was this physical piece of wood that was like bolted in there. So you would hear no noise from the piano. Mm. Right. And Prince was only going to, he was just going to act like he was playing anyway. He was totally fine with that as right. music video style. He's not going to play piano live. He's just going to act like he's doing it. Well, it, this is a crazy long day. And, and at like 11 o'clock at night, I think we wrapped at two in the morning, maybe three, he wanted to play the piano. And he kind of motioned to the, to the stage manager. And of course, we were given all these crazy rules, you know, don't talk to him, don't look him in the eye. I, I got none of that. I think that was a lot of his people just being protective of him. Right. You know, I, I just think he was an innately shy person. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the stage manager came to me and said, he wants to play the piano. Um, and I go, oh, there's a piece of wood in there that's bolted in there. So I got one of the carpenters. Well, first of all, I called the piano company, the rental company, at 11 o'clock on a Friday, yeah. woke this guy up. And I'm like, I need to unbolt that thing from the inside your piano. Can I do that legally? Or can you come and do it? He's like, I can't do it, but I can, I can explain how. So he explained it, more or less, brought one of the carpenters up. Prince is sitting at the bench. He's kind of, he's, I think he's looking at his script and kind of, you know, he's not playing the piano, but he's kind of noodling around. And I go, I just said, excuse me, we're going we're gonna to make this so you can play it. He's like, oh, thanks. And he, he walked away for a little bit. So I'm like, I looked at him in the eyes. I, I'm okay. It's, everything's okay. So... Carpenter and I, we unbolted this very complex thing. Cause you know, this is a $80,000 piano. I'm like, if I break something, yeah. if the soundboard cracks, you know, <laughs> if the, if the, if the carpenter drops a, a screwdriver into the sound hole, it's there forever. Yeah. So we're very gently taking this out. We get it up and Prince was so happy. I mean, he's playing the piano and then, you know, it's midnight and here we are, here's the crew, you know, in between takes of things, changing lighting or whatever. And we're listening to Prince just sitting there playing piano. That's cool. It was just a dream. That's amazing. And I should cut to Leslie Carrara and I, you know, on the set. 
yeah. listening to that stuff too. That was, uh, you know, influential in our our romantic our romantic pursuits. I would say, uh, yeah, I'll bet know? it was. We had Tony Bennett on there as well. You know, that was uh, another one of those days. But yeah. no, the 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 coolest puppeteering thing I think I saw during the Prince show was the underwater stuff on the song she gave her angels. Mm-hmm. There were there was a giant aquarium and there were these beautiful angelic creatures and flowing white fabric underwater and the puppeteers were above the aquarium puppeteering them it was when we just i just cool. was staring at that i'm like i got some time i can just stare at this for a while yeah. well, well speaking of the puppeteers and the puppetry you you got to meet all of these guys i'm i'm guessing you got to work with yeah. those puppeteers i have very few like specific memories of those guys like working mm-hmm. with those guys i mean i remember recording things because we would go to capitol studio a and record vocals or conway these beautiful studios yeah and i remember recording like pigeons and <laughs> like the sounds <laughs> right. of like singing pigeons yeah um but dave i think dave really hit me when we did bats the musical because that was with Jason Alexander, and just that comedic timing. Just, you know, watching those guys act through these scenes. Uh, again, for me, I'm just like, okay, I was in Greece in high school. This is this is the real deal, you yeah. know? Yeah. And Frank Oz and, and Jerry Nelson. I mean, you know, I didn't really, I didn't know the name Jerry Nelson. I mean, I'm sure I'd seen him on, on The Muppet Show, but what a legend, you know, to be interacting with. And Leslie will tell you, I'm sure she may have mentioned this in her interview, that his dressing room was next to hers. Yep. He'd play guitar in the morning just to kind of warm up the day, took, uh, took her under his wing to, you know, kind of helped her with monitor stuff, puppeting monitor things, and was just a wonderful mentor to her. Uh, but, you know, for me, I have no specific Jerry Nelson stories from Muppets Tonight. It's weird. Because I was so green, part of it was like, yeah, I was doing other things all day. My only interaction with the puppeteers would have been at recording sessions when I was helping direct them through the song. Um, and very limited on set, what I do on Sesame Street now with cueing things is much more uh, elaborate than what I did on, on Muppets Tonight. Because I think on Muppets Tonight, partly, we did have time to rehearse. <laughs> we would yeah. rehearse, the, rehearse the song quite a bit. So they would have it, they didn't need to be cued, you know. And it, for things like um, Garth Brooks, you know, doing Fiddler on the Roof, the chickens were just barking, bark, bark, barking. I wasn't underneath the chickens cueing them. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Uh, so very l- less physical stuff between me and the puppeteers on set back then. But, well, but the, the beauty of it, again, was the live music. And when we had a live band there, I would be conducting. And obviously only the guest singer could see me the puppeteers were buried underneath the set but like when whoopi whoopi goldberg was on we had a live band for diamonds are our girl's best friend and i was literally conducting her and the band to you know ins and outs of the song so uh, i mean for live stuff that was just exhilarating yeah you know and so we all know that you're married to leslie carrara rudolph who's now come in and, and several times interrupted the interview it's kind of expected, uh, but <laughs> at a certain point, so so, and she told us the story of your your courtship on her uh, on her below the frame, and it's lovely. But when did you look at Leslie in a way that was like, oh wait a second, I really have a connection with this person? Wow. Well, I think it it was definitely musically on set because mm-hmm. um, we, there was a piano on set. She probably told you this too. We, there was a piano on set. I had a fake book with all these different jazz tunes and we would just, you know, on breaks and there were often long breaks. I mean, th- this was, you know, we would have 12 or 14 hour days, but 
there would be big breaks between setups and lighting and changeovers to sets and things. Um, so we would just sit at the piano, thumb through the pages of a fake book, sing some songs. Uh, I loved her voice, just her natural voice as a mm-hmm. singer. I mean, she could do character voices, million character voices as a singer, but uh, it was really fun just to hear her sing, you know, as herself, as like a cabaret lounge singer, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't It's one of those, like, I don't know. It's it's in here. Yeah. It's know, interesting how those things moment. happen, though, where you just, I mean, it, you're not, maybe not looking for that kind of thing. And then one day you just realize, no, oh, not wait, at all. I have a connection with yeah. this person that is more right. than what I I mean, I she thought. knew, in fact, uh, the first season, you know, we, we did a season and a half. The first season I was dating somebody else. And yeah, we just became friends. You know, yeah. I had no inkling at the time this was going to go anywhere, but here we are. And here you are. So. <laughs> all these years later. All these years later. And you're both. Yeah. On Sesame Street. You on Sesame Street. So how was, it Here that we you, are. how was it that you made it to Sesame? Well, okay. So back on Muppets Tonight, uh, there were lots of folks that cross-pollinated between Muppets and Sesame Street, including Kevin Clash, um, Jerry Nelson, um, you know, even John, I mean, John Kennedy. You know, there are a lot of people that, that did both even back in the day. Leslie was not, of course, part of Sesame Street at the time. But I, she definitely kept in touch with Kevin Clash over the next, from Muppets Tonight ending to, you know, Sesame Street, definitely kept in touch. And he would bring her in for different projects. Um, uh, Sesame Sesame Beginnings, I think, think was one of the earliest, mm-hmm. uh, where she would do, I think she was Prairie Dawn's mom or something, yeah. Delta Dawn, something like that. Yes, I think so, yeah. and uh, I came out for that. I saw that filming, which is fascinating, um, because I, there was a very big gap from, the end of Muppets Tonight to Sesame Street, there's an 11-year gap in there. What did I do? Well, I worked for a wonderful composer duo, Trivers Myers Music, in the commercial music world. That's a whole other chapter. Hmm. But um, getting to the street, I Kevin really knew what I had done on Muppets Tonight. Kevin Clash knew. And because he was one of the producers now, exec producers at Sesame Street, at the time, which goes back to 2007, 2008, Leslie's already on the show, uh, on Sesame Street, and Kevin was thinking, well, how can we get Paul on the show, I guess? Maybe that was in the back <laughs> of his mind. But Dave Connor, wonderful vocal music director forever on Sesame Street. Dave Connor had handed over the reins to Judy Clerman, and so I was in this mode of, like, what am I doing? I was working with this commercial company part-time, but Kevin was looking for somebody to come in and do and help out. And I think more in the digital world, I think they needed somebody who was a little more up on the technology part. Mm -hmm. So Kevin knew what I had done on Muppets Tonight in terms of music directing and assisting vocalists, learning new songs, working with celebrities, all that stuff. But I think he also, I had to tell him, here's what I do, you know, in the digital world now. Here's what I can do. But then he also said, because he was looking for uh, a uh, compositional things like for underscoring. And I don't know if it was necessary for Sesame Street because... Mike Renzi was in doing all that. Mike Renzi, you know, longtime music director at Sesame. And so Kevin asked me to do an arrangement of Sing. He's just like, do, do an arrangement of Sing. Just give me whatever. And I go, well, what, what style? What do you want? He's like, anything. Just your style. Okay. So I did a bossa nova arrangement of Sing. <laughs> I had my friend uh, Gabe, who's a wonderful engineer that I learned 90% of what I, know, what I know from. I had his daughter sing on it because she was like 14 or 15. I needed a, a kid voice. She sang on Sing. I sent that to Kevin. He's like, great. But I didn't really hear much back. And then hmm. I get a call in, I think it was September of 2008, from April. Chatterton. It's like, 
She's like, how'd you like to come and work for Sesame Street? I'm like, yeah, what capacity? <laughs> what am I doing? And at the time, it was going to be like studio music director. Like whatever happened on the set, I would be responsible for. Mm -hmm. So music would come in to me from Mike Renzi. I would basically be in charge of where does this go? We need to record vocals on this. I need to be on set to you know, assist and conduct or cue puppeteers or guests or whatever. So, but, you know, as you know, over 13 years, my job has morphed into many different things. So, uh, but that was kind of the start. That was, um, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was going to be doing. I had kind of an idea. I knew what, what uh, Dave Connor had done. Um, but I knew that was very analog. That was very much like sitting in a recording studio, teaching a song mm -hmm. to, you know, teaching a new song to a cast member or finding the right key for the song, uh, which, you know, we had done on Muppets Tonight. That was one of my main things I took from Richard Gibbs is, you know, we need to find keys, especially guests that are not necessarily singers. We need to make them comfortable singing whatever this crazy parody song is, find the range for them. Mm. Um, so even back then I, I had to call, I called uh, Tony Bennett's piano player, Ralph Sharon. That was a, my hand was like shaking. I'm like, I'm calling Ralph Sharon. Ralph Sharon is a legend. I think he was Tony Bennett's, uh, music director accompanist for the 35 years, something. Wow. Um, I left my heart in San Francisco, the, be the beginning opening piano. That's Ralph Sharon. Hmm. I mean, just this beautiful touch. His, uh, Tony Bennett's trio was live on Muppets Tonight. Sorry, I'm off yeah, on the no, tangent again. Right. But we had his trio. We had um, his bass player and a drummer named Clayton Cameron uh, playing brushes. And it was just, you could hear a pin drop on that set. Because wow. we pre-recorded on the set. That's another thing. We had a mobile rig come in hmm. with D88 tapes. And we recorded Tony Bennett. He did, I think, two takes of five songs with the band. And, I mean, you could hear it. When the, when the song stopped and we were looking at the engineer for, like, we okay? It was like a pin drop. Wow. And then the whole crew just uh, erupted. Uh, all live. So special to be in the, in the room then, on, those, on those occasions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, he lip-synced when we performed. I think the only thing, I think he did sing live when he was in the... Um, <laughs> what is it like the zoltar thing yes which the, johnny fiamma had <laughs> the thing i think he he may have sung live in that i could be wrong but yeah well oh and and back to those performers bill beretta by the way yeah um i'm a big fan and i'm i'm a bigger fan of johnny fiamma <laughs> because that was a new character for me you know i knew i knew animal as a drummer i i was blown away when I got to be like, I got to drum for animal off stage live. That was a trip for the, the Sandra Bullock show. Mm -hmm. But, um, Johnny Fiala just hit for me. And I'm like, we, this, this needs its own show. And every time I see Bill, I'm like, when are we going on the road? When's the lounge act? You know, yeah. <laughs> because I think there's a Victor Borga in there because I think Johnny, Johnny would mess up lyrics. Yeah. Victor Borga would mess up a piece. And I'm like, this is comedy music. This is, you know, maybe it, Maybe it all comes back to Victor Borger. I miss that. I, I miss that Johnny Fiamma. Oh, I'd like to yeah. see him again. Right? Yeah. Oh, here's a Where question for you. So we're at Sesame Street now. Yeah. Tell us, because your job has, like you said, it, it's morphed over the years. So currently, what is it that you do on Sesame Street for the performers, but also for the show at large? So, yeah, a couple different hats. Uh, my number one job is vocal music director. Um, I have a, I would call it a second job, which is music editor. And then also I, I work on, I'm music director for some of the live performances and I'm also a composer. Yeah. So within that spectrum, vocal music director being the biggest part, that's kind of where I started, but morphed into that title. 
my job there is to teach you and the cast members as performers. We basically record new songs, old songs, uh, songs for the season, songs for digital content, live songs as well. Um, my job there is to find the right key for those songs, character keys, character range, super important, and then basically deliver that song to you all. And I, we work through the song, we learn it, I record it, all that. So as a music director, that's kind of one job. As a music editor, I'm recording you in my office, in my small little music studio office at Kaufman Astoria. So, so we'll I'm taking all those vocals. We'll get a, a track that you have sent us, right? And it's a demo. And a yeah. lot of times you have, right. if it's not somebody else, uh, the composer of that particular song, sometimes it's you and it's like, you know, uh, four different layers with all the harmonies on it. And then, uh, and you've just kind of given us that as uh, a framework just so we know where, where it is. So then we'll come into you in the booth and we will, you know, put our headphones on and stand by the microphone and then you tell us what to do. Sing away. Yeah. Yeah. And, and upstream from me, the, you know, the show as a whole, the curriculum has been decided. Mm -hmm. The let's call it the theme for the season maybe has been decided. The lyrics have been written by wonderful writers. Those lyrics are given to a composer. The composer composes the song in demo form. Mm -hmm. That's approved. Then it comes to me. I then can change the key based on the, the cast member, right. the range of the character, deliver it to the cast. They learn it at home. They come into my office, and we sing and record it. And yeah, it's if, I'm, if it's a complex piece with multiple harmonies, I'll often split those out, send those to you individually. Yeah. If it's like the Macy's Parade... Or something where there's you know 16 Muppet voices on it. Super helpful. And I'm parsing that to out to have that. So helpful to be able to hear. Yeah. And go, oh, that's what. Well, I'm and that's. Doing. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the funnest things for me to arrange. I was just thinking about the song "Anyone Can Be Friends" that we did for I think it was season 50. Um, uh, Violet was part of that. Charlie, I think, was introduced, and that was a big culmination of 16 characters singing. It's so fun for me to arrange those songs vocally because yeah. you know, I have to find all those places for all the vocals to fit and Macy's Macy's parade songs included. And it's just so great because you want, you want individual characters to shine and yet you're part of a choir Yeah, in a choir, in a church choir or the singing wires, you're blending. <laughs> yeah. You don't want a voice to stick That's out. That's not how it there works. There are natural <laughs> voices that stick out. Yeah. Right. And, and my thing with, you know, with pop music and, and in general is like, you know, people scoop up to notes a lot. There's a lot of scooping. Uh -huh. And in choirs, you cannot scoop. You got to hit that note. You can't that note. Yeah. You don't do that in choirs. That's how I was trained. Mm -hmm. So when I hear people scooping, I'm like, okay, you're listening to whatever pop musician. They're kind of doing that. But let's, let's take that back a little bit because we, as a Sesame Street cast, you all are singing as kids, most of you, your kid characters. Mm -hmm. So how would a child sing that? You know, yeah. That's how I'm always approaching that stuff. Not that, not that we're, my, my philosophy there, of course, comes from Joe Raposo. He never wanted to talk down to kids. He wanted to, to lift them up. So he and other composers have written these amazingly complex, beautiful songs that are so memorable, but they're, they're, they're not simple songs. You know, there's some really wonderful, complex jazz chords in, in Raposo songs and Sam Pottle and, and others. So yeah, the fun part, part for me the fun part for me is arranging multiple Muppet vocals so that they can all be heard. You know, if I have too many sopranos, if I have, you know, 
Elmo, Abby, Rosita, Prairie Dawn, all on one line, it's not necessarily going to speak through for something like the Macy's Parade. Yeah. So I can put Prairie Dawn higher. I can put Rosita lower. Elmo and Abby, and some, some of the voices, even though they might be on the same exact melody line, they are in and of themselves different enough where they're going to cut through. Um, you know, or Grover and Bert. I always try and separate those two. And, and subconsciously I'm doing that because I know it's one performer doing those. It's mm-hmm. Eric doing those, but I know, I mean, the characters are going to sound different. Yeah. I just like to split them up a little bit. Yeah. And you it know, makes Grover sense. higher, Bert lower. And that's natural too, because Bert's Bert, I would, I would call him like a low tenor, uh, maybe, maybe baritone. I mean, he can hit baritone notes, mm-hmm. But Grover, definitely a tenor yeah. into alto, and the silliness comes from those characters when they can get out of that range and do crazy, silly things. Yeah, if, if a character voice gets too low, it, it definitely gets quickly out of character. Yeah. It's really hard to breathe through and get, and it just depends on many things. If there's a, uh, say, Cookie Monster with a scratchy, gravelly quality to it, uh, or even Abby just you know, for Leslie to eke out Abby's sound lower, it's harder. Yeah. Up high, it just gets strained. You can still do it, but it's just a strain physically. You might still be able to be in character up high, but it's just musically it can sound strained. Yeah. You know, there's if, a sweet spot for Abby's, all the characters. There's like definitely, a sweet spot. Yeah. And and it's it's definitely more than an octave for the musicians out there that are thinking about this stuff. And I and I tell this to to students too. Uh, people have asked me about training your voice to do those things. And my advice is go to a proper vocal coach mm-hmm. or vocal teacher, because they will help you find that range uh, of, of, and expand that range to, if your character voice is an octave, well, maybe there's something that you can do physically with your voice or opening your throat or straining more to get that character sound. Yeah. I mean, you know, cause you do multiple voices, uh, what that can do to your vocal cords physically. I mean, it can really be taxing. So oh, yeah. it's also, building those those muscles up the vocal cords being a muscle just like anything and i think it was pavarotti who said if i rest i rust you know (laughs) so you can't you have to keep that up that that physical quality and in ranges too you know well i'll tell you you know paul it is so great having you on set with us when we are going to do a song uh at least as long as I'm not in Big Bird, because if I'm in Big Bird, I can't see when you're pointing <laughs> to go. But I then I'm yelling just, or I'm hitting you on the leg. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You have tapped me on the leg. Uh, yeah, uh, but yeah. but it's so it's uh it's like a security blanket to know that you're there oh. to you know oh thank you. to know you know to point to us when we're going to sing or to like you know say don't sing here. You know it's really right. it's really helpful. Even though we've pre-recorded these songs, uh, you know pretty much 99% of the time I would say we pre-recorded, yeah. but not every time. There are some times when we've done, right. done stuff live. It is so helpful to have you there to guide us through that song. It's a really essential uh, piece. Well, and I also, I try and read the room with that too, based on what y'all are doing physically, puppeteering-wise, because I know you have a million things yeah. in your brain. You're looking at a monitor. I mean, left is right, right is left. That's one complex layer. You're looking at a tiny little script next to that monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're thinking about all these physical things and you're acting mm-hmm. and you're lip syncing. So my job is to find what's the least I have to do to cue you. Yes. You know what I mean? I don't want to overdo it. I'm not conducting. I'm no, not no. sitting there conducting. Nope. I am basically either yelling or pointing yep. or multiple pointing um, just to make sure that, yes, the stops and the starts are good. Maybe the cutoffs, I'm cutting you off. But yes, if you're Big Bird or... 
or Eric is in the in the Oscars trash can. <laughs> you have no idea. Well, There's no monitor on me. Yeah, like there would be on a Broadway show where you see the conductor on this little black and white yeah. monitor yeah. cutting everybody off. I would have to hope know? that you know I am singing in unison with everybody else. And if I don't know where it is in the song, usually I do. But if I don't, I'm watching the whole picture and going, "Oh, we're singing now." You know, I have yeah. to get the <laughs> right. cue kind of secondhand from uh, yeah. you know Elmo or something. Uh, well, and I, I think what I love about the Jim Henson style is the exactness of music in puppetry and in, in, in Muppets. And I, I think that goes back maybe to me watching animal play drums, you know, against Buddy Rich, because, you know, I didn't know at the time, maybe I was watching him hit a cymbal and not thinking, Oh, that's a fake cymbal. Mm-hmm. It's a puppet. But the, the physical part of it is there. You know what I mean? So it's believable to me. And when we did the, the Dave Grohl, drum battle with animal. I mean, that was like, that was a day. Thank yeah. you, Brad Elliott for yeah. bringing was, me in on that day. Cause I was not working on that Disney show. Yeah. That was the ABC. I'll never Muppet forget series, that call. Right. That was the ABC Muppet yeah. show. And there was a tag yeah. at the end of one of the episodes, the Dave Grohl episode, and they did a drum yep. off and tell us a little bit yep. about what, what you got to do for that. Well, yeah, Brad Elliott called me and I knew he was working on the show. I knew lots of you were, I knew there was a lot of, a lot of cross pollination between yeah. Sesame and, and, and Muppets on ABC. And so um, Brad called me and he's like, I'm, I'm in New York. He's in LA. And he's like, hey, um, any chance you could come out, you know, next week and, and help me on something? And I'm like, oh, what do you got? It's like, I'm not, yeah, I got a couple weeks. I could do something. He goes, well, do you want to come and be Animal's drum tech? <laughs> and a drum tech being, you know, a, a drum tech for a, a real person drummer is making sure the cymbal stands are right and the snare drum's in the right position. And, you know, if anything falls over, you replace it and do all that. And I'm like, Absolutely. He's like, what, what, what are you doing? He goes, well, I need you for a day. And oh, by the way, uh, Dave Grohl is going to be there drumming <laughs> with Animal. And I'm like, sold. I'm there. I'll fly out. <laughs> so, um, and, and he, he further explained that he's like, well, you might be Dave Grohl's drum tech as well. I don't know the logistics yet, but he kind of, in a nutshell, he said, there's going to be a battle between Animal and Dave Grohl. Their drum sets are going to fall apart. <laughs> And then you're going to have to kind of help them set it back up the way it was when we first started the shot to make sure it's exact. And we have continuity between where was that symbol and take one? Is it, is it there for take three or five? Yeah. So yeah, that was my initial job was like, come out, uh, make sure animals drum kit is in, is in good stead and make sure it's placed correctly. Um, I knew that Misha would be drumming. I, I, you know, my, I don't think my job really was anything to do with him puppeteering or Eric puppeteering animal. I think Brad asked, he's like, would you, you know, you want to talk to Misha? I mean, Misha knows you're a drummer. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could chat about it. So the day I walked in the day of the, of taping, Misha's already got his headphones on and he's physically like thinking about the drumming because of the demo that had come from the composer with the specific drumming. And he's already got it in his hands. I mean, he's working it. Yeah. You know, physically puppeteering that and being underneath Having and trying to look at the monitor and get the, getting that believable is amazing. And, and Misha's style too, the way he drums for animal is just unbelievable. The way he, he pistons more than fulcrums, you know, from the wrist, yeah. he's up and down and the rod goes up and the stick is kind of like at a 45 degree angle. Uh, yeah. Well, and Dave Grohl was just a master on the day too. I mean, he was such a blast just to, I, I'd never met him before and he was so into it. Stayed, I think much longer than he was maybe supposed to rap. It was there all day. I think his daughter was there. Yeah. Uh, he was still nursing his broken ankle from a Foo Fighters show yep. and, 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 you know, kicking a bass drum over at the time. I'm like, careful of your ankle, man. 
Uh, and then a couple of years later, he uh, came to Sesame Street and did the Cross America. The road trip song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Here we go. Here we go. With Big Bird and Elmo. Which yeah. was so much fun. Because I'm a, a Grohl fan as well. And just to be able to do yes. that with him was uh, just a, a, oh. a dream. And and. Uh, and a consummate pro. Again, he did, he was not like, you know, I got a heart out at two. He yeah. was just like, I'm here. Let's do this. Yeah. I mean, the guy's been on a million hours of video music tapings, I'm sure. He's been on set probably many more hours than that. It knows the knows the drill. Yeah. Um, but he was so natural even of a, as himself. Because, you know, I think, I think when celebrities come on set, um, they are thinking about the audience and they're thinking about, okay, we're, we're, we're singing to this audience. But then I think some of them are just like, no, I'm going to be myself. I'm not going to be a rock and roller Dave Grohl, yeah. but I'm going to be a, a silly Dave Grohl. And I think he just found that perfect balance yeah. of like, he was still himself for and sure. Just, but but he was, yeah, uh, he, yeah, was he knew animated. who the audience was. More with Paul Rudolph in a minute. But first, it's time for a song from Jerry Nelson. Jerry was a great singer and he wrote a lot of his own songs. And as Fran mentioned earlier, Jerry recorded an album called Truro Daydreams. And you can find that album on your favorite streaming place as well as uh, physical CDs. And um, one of the songs on Truro Daydreams is called Noah's Ark. And today, we're going to listen to an early version of that song that Jerry originally called Groovin' on Noah's Ark. Enjoy. Now listen, folks, and I'll tell you the tale. Just the way I heard it from the old blue whale You know what happened when Noah was under sail They started grooving on Noah's Ark Yeah, the chimps and the raccoon did the boogaloo Giraffes slowed down the well of blue gun new Well, I heard a party animals in that crew Well, they were grooving on Noah's Ark Everyone was bouncing Skunks and a porcupine Skunk said, baby, I don't mean maybe you thrill me, but watch those spines. Wasn't nothing else to do. Ham and that bat dawned into Yeah, they were boogieing with that archie just proving on Noah's eye. You know the bear cat and crocodile danced a while. No whole fox grin made a bear cat smile. He's a pretty cool cat for a crocodile. Moving on Noah's eye. Jim was tending bar on the poop deck And I used the term poop deck advisedly Because they had been on that barge for quite some time I tell you everyone was bouncing Rocking and rolling to Oh, they've been a seat so doggone long was nothing else left to do well, the noise was so fierce, what the heck? Noah had to sleep out on the deck. Man, that cat was a nervous wreck, or they were grooving on Noah's side. And that's when Miss Noah had to draw the line, but they was having such a bing-bang time. You know, she slapped them all with a bodacious fine for grooving on Noah's side. Well, you might think it's all conjecture, but I'm telling you, that's the way it happened. Go ask the skunk at a porcupine, they'll tell you that it's true. Yeah, it's true, boss. That's the way it was told to me. My old man went from under the sea. His grandpappy was there for the jamboree. And they was moving. All oh, they was grooving. Man, they was moving and grooving, grooving on Noah's Ark.
Thanks, Jerry. We're back one more time with Paul Rudolph. Well, speaking of musicians, Paul, you are a musician. Yeah. And you have that I am a project, a band, a it's it's called Glank. It's called Glank. Can you explain to people that don't know what Glank is? What what is Glank? Well, Glank is I will call it a percussion performance art ensemble. That's like a big name for it. Yeah. Um, it's for me. It's found object. It started with found object percussion instruments, um, tuned saw blades, uh, propane tanks that I would cut you know, different pitches into. Um, but then it, I, there's part of a, there's a little Devo in it because the performers are all anonymous. Not that Devo was anonymous, but we're anonymous in clean room suits. Um, there's a little blue man group in it um, because they are somewhat anonymous. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of audience participation as part of it. Now that's, Glank is, is a couple different performance things. The, the, the theater music theater part of it is a, an immersive audience experience where the audience sits in a theater with my group and they become part of the show. They will play a shaker with an LED light in it and all the lights will go down. They will put on a lab coat and a mask and essentially look like the players. And so the line between the players and the audience kind of blurs. Um, that's like a 90 minute sit down theater show, which you have been a yeah, part of absolutely. with your, I think two of Some your of my kids. kids were there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing. So it's, um, well, yeah, thank you. The, the, the fun part of it for me actually kind of goes back to marching band because in marching band, you are all wearing the same <laughs> uniforms and right. outfits and you are more or less anonymous and you are playing multiple parts of this. You know, you have you t say 10 snare drummers playing the same cool, complex part. Um, for me, that's kind of the, this distilled vibe of Glank with my percussionist is getting five of us in a row playing like marching LP tanks or something, you know, unique sound wise. Um, it, so it's, it's a lot of things in a nutshell. It's, you know, industrial music and percussion. Um, I, we do also do gigs where we'll do like an outdoor gig at the Maker Fair where I'll just have, you know, tables set up with all sorts of, you know, instruments that are very hands on. Uh, you know, a homemade shaker with, you know, popcorn in it that a, a child can make at home super easily. And we'll do like silly audio, you know, music lessons where I kind of scientifically describe how to play a shaker, which we do in a live show. <laughs> yeah. We do that as part of, you know, outdoor shows. And I love, you know, 1950s kind of vibe, sci-fi, especially with voiceover. Um, I hired a very good actor uh, to do voiceover for one of the first shows I did. And he really had to dumb down his delivery. I'm like, it should sound stilted. Yeah. You know, like those old industrial films oh, yeah. from the fifties where, you know, they might not have hired a professional, but they're like, you know, Bob in accounting has a great voice. <laughs> yeah, he should do the voiceover. Him, yeah, put him and in it's there. like this very stilted, take the shaker and hold it at arm's length and move it side to, you know? Yeah. So that's the kind of style I went for is this like atomic lounge fifties kind of, kind of thing with, you know, certain pieces other pieces are just you know bombastic fun or i'll do video projection pieces um i have one piece called girl car girl car sports and i basically dressed up a gi joe in a glank outfit and i am behind him in my own glank outfit i am holding the gi joe's arms and i am drumming for real on a little piece of metal and my friend brad kemp filmed that multiple times so we then projected that. So we have these two. I love playing with scale. Mm -hmm. 
we have three layers of scale. We have the live percussionist standing there playing, and projected on the wall is a G.I. Joe who's about their size, and a giant me, four of me, anonymous. So there's four percussionists, you know, four, four, and four yeah. in different scale. And I've always wanted to play more with that, with the scale part. I've experimented with different kinds of helmets that the performers wear. Um, I'm also a big fan of David Byrne and his giant white suit. And I've always wanted to morph our outfits to get bigger and bigger as the show goes on. So almost like shoulder pads or armature wire so that yeah. by the end of the show, you know, there's these <laughs> six foot tall performers, but they have these weird outfits that are just way too big. And, you know, that's David Byrne in the big, yeah. the big suit. So, um, yeah, Glank is a lot of things. It's, it's kind of taken a, a backseat with the pandemic, but I have been doing a lot of solo stuff at home. And well, there's also um, a, a video component too, right? I mean, we, you could find Glank out there in the world yeah. on the internet. Where do, where do Glank, people go to a, find uh, Glank? Yeah, so uh, glankglankglank.com is the easiest place to go. Yep. Uh, if you go to YouTube and search Glank, just G-L-A-N-K, you'll find us, Glank Percussion. There's a lot of mu- music videos that I've done over the years that are specifically just music videos. Uh, some of the pieces uh, we have performed live, and there's also a lot of live video stuff from our shows um, on that website and YouTube channel. So, yeah. yeah. And with the pandemic, it's been me just messing around more with vibraphone and different effects and percussion things that songs that I've always wanted to try with Glank as cover songs. You know, Glank is not a cover band, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> but um, it, we would definitely pursue... Uh, we well for Dragon Con in 2017, I took uh, took the group to Dragon Con, and we did some kind of bombastic 90s. We kind of I kind of honed in on the 90s for some 90s kind of music that lent itself almost to like spoken word vocals. And I had my good friend uh, Jonesy Broderick Jones do like voiceover and singing as part of that show, and that was more like a proper rock show. That yeah. was like you know an hour set. Not not so much uh, audience participation, although we did hand out shakers during that show uh, to get the audience involved and kind of wandered into the audience. I always do that. I always love doing that. And yet, I you know, I'm that kid in the audience who is afraid of the scary clown. I don't want to be like part <laughs> right. of the like don't get thing. Yeah. But but uh, we, what I do in those shows, which you were a part of in those theater shows, is I definitely I I, I space out the audience participation to a point where I think you want to feel like you're part of yes, it. Yes, I think you so want to put on a lab coat. You want and become feel part. like okay, I'm comfortable. Yeah, well, it's yeah, really, it's almost like a Halloween costume at that point. It is. You know, yeah, you, you want you, know. you want to be a part of it and get some candy. <laughs> because yeah, part of it is is I want the audience to feel uninhibited. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and yet there's this weirdly connective tissue between us and them, and I want us all to be moving that shaker the same time with yeah. an LED light in the shaker and the lights go down and all of a sudden there's a hundred people doing this thing. It's really And that's cool. marching band in a nutshell. Yeah, it is. You know? It's so awesome. So Thank check, you. check yeah. out Glank if you get a chance if you're listening to this. Yeah. All right, Paul, Thanks. we're going to do some rapid fire questions now. Oh yeah, I heard these on the thing, you know. Yeah, I heard Bill Beretta go through You can this. do this. These are challenging, but I've tried to, to, to <laughs> you know, alter them slightly to, to reflect your job with the Muppets. So here okay. we go. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. Here we go. What's the hardest part about working with the Muppets? The hardest part about working with the Muppets. Um, you know, uh, it's honestly, it's finding that perfect key for different songs. Okay. For, for the character voice. I always want that character to shine. Very good. What's the easiest part about rapid working? enough? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. The easiest part, I, I think easiest slash funnest is being on the, on the floor and watching the song come together. Yeah. 
Like, I, well, that's more fun, I guess, than easy. Yeah, yeah. It is easy, it's but your, that's fun. To see all the work that's gone before the song come together and see it performed and see it come to life. Yeah, that works. That's, that's the super. easiest part. Okay. Yeah. What is your biggest strength in your role? Um, I think making people comfortable musically. Oh, that's so, a good answer. I, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because when you are in a studio setting, and whether it's you as a seasoned performer or a 12-year-old kid who's never worn headphones in a studio before, I want that person to be super comfortable singing, emoting, you know, g- getting the rhythms and the pitch right, yes, but delivering the song. And those are there, there's, there can be a fine line between that because – if a 12-year-old kid who's never been in the studio doesn't know how to hold the headphones right or has never heard themselves singing through with the track, they might be more thinking about the pitch and the rhythm versus the message of the song, the emotion behind the the, the tempo, the the overall feeling, whether it's happy, sad. Yeah, that. Easy to do. Uh, Then um, what is your biggest weakness, do you think, in your role? That's a harder one, I'm going to say. Um. Well, I think it is as a, I'm not, I don't consider myself a vocal coach. So I think my weakness would be, I want to be able to help singers, you know, vocal cord wise, muscle wise, find different ways to achieve things as a character voice. Mm -hmm. That's super, super specific. And that's something that I don't have because I'm not, I was not a vocal music major. I took vocal classes in college and all that. But there are people like Leslie's vocal teacher, uh, Judy Glad, is is phenomenal at that as as helping you with your vocal cords in terms of almost like a workout. So like like finding different ways or telling you to like, oh, what if you put it up in your nose a little bit more, or push it more forward in your mouth? Yeah, you put it over here in your, your right. I see. And that's something that with you, with all the Sesame Street cast, you already have that. You know, you have that in terms of the character sound. Right. You've already got it because. You know, Marty's been doing telly, telly for how many decades, that voice. There's nothing I can say to him. Can you make it a little more like telly? You know, right. there's no way. Yeah. If I do hear something in a song that's maybe a little out of his range, I might say, you know, does it sound like telly down there or yeah. up there? Uh, or even a, a, a word that sings poorly. You know, there's, there's words yeah. that sing better than other words. That makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. It does. Yeah. What's one of your favorite things about working with the Muppets? Um, well, and this is non-musical, totally, is, is every day walking on set and walking past the Henson desks, the Henson area, mm-hmm. because you're looking at props that are going to be used on the day, or a, a, a broccoli puppet, yep. or a remote control car, or a robot, mm-hmm. or just a rack of puppets, and I'm like, there's Guy Smiley. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, the, just walking, that's the first thing I, I glance at every day when I walk on set, and, yeah. and that's just me as a fan. That's just me going, I yeah, yeah. just love the art, the skill of puppeteering, of, of Muppets in general. That's fun. If you didn't do what you do now, all, all, all encompassing, everything, what would be your career? If I didn't, uh, I'd be a race car driver. <laughs> Ooh, be driving really? Around. That's awesome. Driving around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. Oh, you know, when I, was a, cool. when I was a kid, I loved cars. My dad is a car guy. I watched my dad rebuild a 68 Volkswagen, you know, in our garage, helped him with that. He rebuilt a 1941 Mercury hot rod, put a, put a drag racing engine in it. Uh, I went with him to races in Indianapolis and in Wisconsin. 
I just loved cars. Wow. Yeah. All right. And the last one, Paul, and, and this one, I think we already know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So Jerry Nelson said to me once, our buddy Jerry, he said, Sesame Street's great, but always have something that is your own that you create. So, you know, what is that for you? I mean, you've got Glank, but maybe is there something that you want to create? Lamps. Found object lamps. Honestly, like that, that could be my other career. If I were not a musician, I'd be making lamps, you, you, lighting. So yeah. making a lamp out of yeah. found objects. Have you done this before? Yeah. I, I I started. I, I have many projects I've started, Matt, yeah. as, as I think many of us do. We start projects and then we get busy with other things. <laughs> That's but true. I and Jerry Jerry said that to me too. That yeah. very same thing. Yeah. Like when we were when I was working with them early on. Oh, there's that that sound. Yeah. You're going to want to edit that out. I can't. That's the garage door of our landlord, who's a plumber. Yeah, that's staying in. And there it's done. So, yeah, I remember Jerry saying that to me. And and at the time, it definitely was Glank. Because Glank started in L.A. more of as like a party band thing with with percussionists and Mm. non-percussionists. We would do the same exact thing. We would go to a... Like uh, we used to do these Christmas parties at this place that made uh, furniture out of airplane parts called Moto Art. And we'd play their Christmas party. And we, I would just throw up tracks, like EDM tracks, and we would play along to those. We'd hand out shakers and do all that. Um, but for me, yeah, Jerry mentioned that, and I said, well, that's Glank. But, you know, as a freelancer, you're always thinking about that next gig and kind of worried about the next paycheck. Yeah. And at the time, when I brought Glank to New York, I wanted to really ramp up the musicianship, and I found amazing percussionists that are Juilliard-trained, and we... I definitely brought that up, but it took a while to kind of get that off the ground because of timing and money and all that. But no, lamps. My dad actually made this very cool lamp out of a cylinder head from a Volkswagen, and he has a wood lathe as well. So he combined wood and metal together and made this really cool found object uh, lamp. So that, Well, I look forward to seeing them. <laughs> there you go. Have it. Paul, thank you so much for talking to me on Below the Frame. It was great talking with you. Thank you, Matt. I hope, yeah, I hope listeners got something out of that. I don't know. They did. They did. <laughs> it's a weird history. It's a long road to Sesame Street, it? Is. Isn't it? You know, everybody has their journey, and, and uh, I think hearing that path is so fascinating to me, and, I, and I, I appreciate you sharing your journey with us. Please. My pleasure. That's it. That's Below the Frame. We will be back with a brand new episode in two weeks, so keep an eye out for that. Get updates and stuff about Below the Frame and The Muppets and Sesame Street and anything I feel like posting about on my Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok accounts at WelcomeMattV or just search for my name. Below the Frame is produced by me, Matt Vogel, and if you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. The theme song for Below the Frame was written by Stephanie DeBruzzo and performed by my band, The Mighty Weaklings. Our podcast logo was created by Dave Holtine at DaveHoltineDesign.com. A special thanks goes out to Jan Nelson for giving me Jerry's stories and to Fran Brill for sharing a memory and reading a story by Mr. Jerry Nelson. Thanks to Paul Rudolph and Leslie Carrara Rudolph for being part of this show. And thanks to you, the fans, for listening. I am Matt Vogel. We will see you in two weeks when we go Below the Frame. Bye-bye. Go, go.